Business in the Okanagan Matters. This is Law Talk with lawyers Clay Williams and Tanvir Gill from FH&P Lawyers, LLP. They talk business and take your questions at podcast at fhplawyers.com. Now, here's Clay Williams. Welcome to another edition of FH&P's Business Law Podcast. I'm Clay Williams and with me as usual, Tanvir, how are you? Good, how are you? Well, you know, I'm doing okay gloomy out today gloomy out but boy are we lucky to have our special guest and uh, so (laughs) with us today uh, we were lucky enough to convince uh, Tracy Head to join us so most of you probably have heard of Tracy Tracy's a mortgage broker she's a CEO of Head Start Mortgages and uh, I think puts out probably one of the most popular castanet columns probably one of the most read so welcome Tracy thank you Clay Tracy, you've been a mortgage broker or in the business of it for a long time. Feels like forever some days. <laughs> so it's a 26 years, I understand. 26 years. Boy, I, I bet you've got some stories. I have a few. <laughs> Use them. We love, we love stories here. So most people, I think, have an idea of what mortgage brokers do uh, nowadays, but can you give us a little overview of what your role is in, in getting a mortgage? Um, so as a mortgage broker, I work with clients from start to finish and beyond. So what we do is we take a client's application and then hold their hands through the process of buying a home. What I love about mortgage brokering is that we have access to a multitude of different lenders. So we can work with either chartered banks, credit unions, private lenders, and alternative lenders. So for me, what I do is I look at a client's application and their particular scenario, and then work with them to decide what the best fit is going to be when I choose a lender for them. And then what mortgage brokers also do is after the fact, we are there to provide service and support for our clients down the road. So the beauty of that is that you build a long-term lasting relationship with your mortgage broker. So it's not like you have to pick up the phone, book an appointment, go into a branch and see somebody who has only been with a bank for a little bit or somebody different than you dealt with last time. Um, I really like it because over the years I've developed relationships with my clients and that just makes it um, incredibly rewarding to do and um, I think a little bit smoother for my clients because they don't have to go through their whole story again. I always get clients that ask whether they should be going to a bank or whether they should use a broker. Or they ask me, what's the difference? What should I do? I always say broker. Go to a different broker. Don't go to the bank just because then you have those options. You can look at credit unions. That's a good point. Yeah. If you do do that. But why? Like when I think about it, I mean, there's there's obviously rates. But uh, what are some of the other... I think it's your access. You have access to so many lenders. It's not just that particular bank. But but so what? I mean, isn't it all about rates or is there more to it than rates? Oh my. It's it's not all about rates. And in point of fact, that's... Uh, I definitely, when I'm choosing a lender for clients, rate is, of course, a very important part of the conversation, but it's certainly not the be-all, end-all. One of the things that I see sometimes is people who are rate shopping and really concerned about getting the lowest rate end up getting placed into what I call a no-frills mortgage. They don't know any different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, three years down the road, if they have to break their mortgage, they end up facing a really large penalty that they could have avoided by not opting into a no-frills mortgage. So rate is important, but options are absolutely more important, in my view. Have you seen, I've actually come across mortgages where there's no right to pay them back at all. 
Absolutely. Some of the no-frills mortgages come with um, the only way that you can get out of the mortgage is if you have a legitimate sale of your home. Mm -hmm. So so that's something, uh, anything else that you take into consideration, you know, other than rates when you're placing clients with the lender? Yes, there are a few different things. Uh, the prepayment penalty obviously is one of them. Another of the things that we look at is you prepayment privileges because some people are hardcore savers mm -hmm. and their main goal is to pay their mortgage down as quickly as they possibly can. Yeah. So I'd be looking for a lender that had maybe higher prepayment privileges or more flexibility. Yeah. The majority of what we get is like 15 or 20% you can put down once a year or up your principal yeah. once a year, right? That's still a lot. Yeah. And most people think that it's a big deal and the majority of people don't ever use it. But I'm working with clients right now that I placed with Manulife, for instance, and their um, prepayment privileges, they can increase their monthly payment by up to 25%. So for these particular clients, that was the right fit because I know that's exactly what they're going to do year over year to pay their mortgage off. Manulife mortgages are always tough. <laughs> it's a lot of paperwork. It's funny how here. different it is on our end. Like you guys submit your deals, you submit applications, you've picked a lender, and then they've instructions look so different based on which bank they come from, it, which quite, lender it quite is. A yeah, difference in the amount of paperwork oh, yeah. that we have to, or hoops that you have to jump through depending on on the lender. That's that's for sure. On our end, it's the same. Some lenders, it just feels like it's more paperwork, more yeah. paperwork, more paperwork. That's one of the big pain points for my clients. So. Most mortgage brokers that I know ask for all of the documents that they possibly can mm -hmm. up front to avoid going back to clients 15, 18 times. Yeah. So on your end and my end, that can be a pain point depending on the lender. But sometimes those lenders are the right fit for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. As an example, if clients have several rental properties, it seems like it would be straightforward. You factor in what the payments are, you factor in what the rent is, and that's how it's calculated, but it's not. Each lender has slightly different calculations. Mm -hmm. So for somebody who has more investment properties, for instance, it would make more sense to take them to a specific lender versus another one. Yep. You know, Even if the rate is slightly better, they may not qualify at that, yeah. that other yeah. lender. Or if someone's been working a certain job for a certain amount of years, are there lenders that require certain years of income? Most are pretty flexible yeah. about that. Mm. Remember I was trying to get a mortgage once when I was like just first starting as yeah. an articling student, but it was a broker who I will not mention. It was like very difficult to figure out whether I qualified or not based off of my like new job and I was just four months in. Do you find there's more paperwork in qualifying than there used to be? Is there a trend in that direction? Oh yes. Yeah. Not to age myself, but you already said 26 years in the business. So in my early days, I was with one of the chartered banks in a small northern community. And basically everybody knew everybody everybody made approximately the same amount of money and very often you know we were able to approve mortgages pretty much on a handshake and mm. and um, so for people who haven't had a mortgage in many years they find it really shocking to step into yeah. what the paperwork requirements are now yeah. well you know I, and I just uh, went through the mortgage process it was a little bit more intense than I recognized like verifying not only do you need to send in your pay slips but then the mortgage company actually called and wanted to make sure that that employer really existed. So do you want to know why that is? Because yeah. that's a question people ask me. Basically, lenders nowadays are doing triple verifications on everything mm -hmm. we submit. There have been several large mortgage fraud rings across the country. Mm -hmm. And with today's technology, it's very easy to create documents if you're a, yeah. a, a guru on the you know different word Computer. processing documents. They're doing triple checks to make sure that what we submit as brokers 
or you submit as clients are legitimate information yeah. or is legitimate information. One thing that's changed in our industry is a lot of verification for us too. We have to verify ID, obviously we have to verify source of funds and there's a lot of fraudulent things that happen just for us in the way that we do our practice. How does fraud factor in with you and whether it's clients or you know applications? So this is gonna sound a little bit harsh, but I've actually fired a few clients because I suspected what they were submitting to me was fraudulent. Yeah. And I have no interest in playing that game. What happens is people are trying so desperately to get into the housing market mm -hmm. that you know they might create fraudulent documents. And they may, ha I've seen some very elaborate setups where they have the whole thing um, orchestrated from false employment letters, false pay stubs, false CRA documents. Mm -hmm and what have you. So this is, again, the reason why lenders do triple check everything. Yeah, Clients who aren't trying to commit fraud tend to get very frustrated with the level of documentation that's required. And I explain many, many times, it's actually for everybody's protection because the more fraudulent losses that the industry takes, um, takes yeah. that, you know, that the more you. we're gonna be paying for our mortgages. Yeah. What do you think about mortgage insurance coverages? Because a lot of my clients are shocked when they come in when they can't put down enough or they can't put down 20% mm -hmm. that like, you know, 15,000 is going to mortgage default coverage. I think that it's a necessary part of our industry because there are a lot of borrowers who maybe haven't had the opportunity to prove themselves yet. Having that default insurance in place, while it seems like a big number, it protects lenders. So again, back to the you know, uh, why lenders do what they do. Having that coverage in place assures lenders that they're not gonna suffer any losses if a mortgage goes sideways or a mm -hmm. client de you know, defaults for some reason. So again, while it seems like a hit for an individual mortgage overall, yeah. you know, it helps to keep things, uh, interest rates lower and yeah. risk levels lower for lenders. Gets people into the market. Gets people in yeah. the door. You know, something that I always thought was maybe backwards. Is it true that mortgage rates are actually lower for yes. CMHC insured mortgages yes. than for people who can come up with the 20%? Okay, so that's the reason that it's lower is because they are paying that premium. So there's no risk to the lender for taking them on. They're not, if they're insured, yeah. the lender's not gonna suffer a loss. However, I've done the calculation. I can't even tell you how many times. I should write it down one day. And even with slightly higher interest rates for uninsured mortgages, versus lower interest rate with the CMHC premium, you still come out further ahead, both um, payment-wise and your balance at maturity, by putting 20% or more down and yeah. paying a slightly higher interest rate. Yeah. You know, I've run the calculation many, many, many times for clients because they couldn't wrap their heads around that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the bottom line is you owe less on your mortgage, 15,000 in your example, at maturity date. And because your interest rate, although slightly higher, is being calculated on a lower balance, you know, it's and the interest savings is huge in the long run. Yeah. In our market, for a $500,000 purchase, for example, as a homeowner entering the market, not everybody can come up with 100000 yeah. Not everybody can come up with 25000 which would be the minimum down payment. Yeah. So although you know, people are shocked sometimes when they see that premium, it allows them to get into the market where otherwise they might not be able to. Tandra, you do a lot of real estate. Tell me about the, the interactions that you have during the a real estate lawyer has uh, with the mortgage broker through the process. We, so we often get calls um, asking about 
one thing would be um, the difference between co-borrowers and guarantors. So when brokers are submitting deals or putting applications together, if somebody doesn't qualify on their own, if there's somebody else that's coming on to the mortgage to help them, they want to know, does this affect title? So if my mom is going to come on with my mortgage to help me buy a house, does my mom need to also be on title with me? So brokers will ask about that. PTT is a big one, property transfer tax and how it how it'll affect their well, well, client. Is there an answer to that? <clears throat> it depends. So, so, it just depends. So can you have a, a oh. borrower who doesn't go on title nowadays? Yeah. I haven't seen one in the last few years. So generally, the lenders are looking for co-borrowers to yeah. be true co-borrowers, not guarantors or yeah. guarantors. And it just depends on the client, right? It depends on the application. It depends on what that person qualifies on their own for. Um, but if they're co-borrowers, then yes, they need to be on titles. We have a lot of people that are confused about that because they say, well, my mom's just helping me by signing. Why does she need to go on title with me? It's because the lender wants them on title to the property versus as when you're guaranteeing a mortgage. And we see guaranteeing a lot more in the commercial aspects if we have mm -hmm. farms and we have multi-million dollar lending and there's multiple properties then there then the lenders are more so okay with somebody just guaranteeing that mortgage what's well, more commercial you know I, yeah but I I've seen it in residential common. have you oh yeah you've seen it in the residential lately? oh yeah that's where we okay. send people for ILA because I if I'm guaranteeing somebody else's mortgage then I'm going to go to a different lawyer I'm going to get my ILA from a different lawyer telling me that I'm still held liable for that mortgage even though I'm not going on title. Yeah, I, I so just we, haven't seen it yeah. as much lately. I mean, mm. you see it all the time in the commercial side, but yeah. on the residential side. One of the things that clients ask me quite often is, you know, how are we structuring the title? Is it like 50-50 and how does this affect other things like property transfer tax? Mm -hmm. And the other question that often comes up is um, joint tenancy versus tenants in common. So how would you explain that to yeah. clients? So the simplest way to explain joint tenancy versus tenancy in common is joint tenancy is the right of survivorship. So most often husband and wife are going to go on as joint tenants. If husband passes away, 100% of the property will go to the wife. Or if the wife passes away, 100% of the property goes to the husband. So regardless of who it is, the minute you have joint tenants, if one individual is going to pass away, 100% of the property will go to the survivors. Tenancy in common is that you're always going to hold that interest specifically to yourself and it'll go downwards to your estate. So if me and my mom have property together as tenants in common 50-50, if I pass away, my 50% interest does not go to my mom. It'll go down into my estate and it'll go that way too. Whether I have a husband, kids, however my estate is structured. Typically, that's why husband and wife are going to go, you know, joint tenants. You, you mentioned Tanvir. Uh, well, you know, if mom is just helping me buy a property, then what are some of the things you can do so that mom doesn't end up owning 50% of the property? Uh, can you give her a, a, mm -hmm. a small percentage? So, and I think you would ask this too, if mom is just going on to help and down the road, she's intending on coming off of the title of the property and off the mortgage because the borrower qualifies on their own. So it's always going to depend on who is helping and who's going on title. If it's mom and daughter, the PTT um, won't be that big of a deal because if as long as the daughter lives on the property and it's child and parent, you don't pay PTT. So there's certain exemptions that apply for the individuals that are going on to help. If my brother came on to title with me when I was purchasing property and 
eventually the intention is that my brother's going to come off of title and I'm going to qualify on my own and I'm going to stay on title and the mortgage is going to be all mine. We're going to make a different consideration because you do pay PTT between siblings. So there's a lineage difference between who pays PTT on transfer and who doesn't, what exemptions apply, what exemptions don't apply. Um, so in some cases, we're structuring title at an individual holds 1% and the rest hold 99 because down the road we know that when title is transferred to the person who's actually going to be legally owning the property and on the mortgage alone, you're going to pay property transfer tax on that 1%. So we'd rather have them pay a nominal 1% rather than a lot, especially if the sole purpose of them going on title was just to help them qualify. Okay. So does that apply up front, the property transfer tax, or just if the, when the transfer happens down the road? So for instance, mom and daughter Both. come in to buy that. Oh, yeah. okay. That's great. So you pay PTT right away once you get an interest in the property. And at that point, mom and daughter got a hundred percent interest. So mom's going to pay PTT, daughter's paying PTT on the hundred percent. If 10 years down the road, you're going to be transferring that 1% over. If their PTT applies, you pay PTT again. So my question, I guess, is um, if if daughter is a first-time home buyer mm -hmm. and she's registering as 99% owner and the purchase price is under 500, so she would qualify for a first-time home buyer exemption, mm -hmm. are they still paying property transfer tax because mom has owned a property before? So if mom's going to go on at 1%, she pays tax on her 1%. If mom goes on 50%, she pays tax on her 50%. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. a question that um, clients ask me quite often, and I always defer and ask them to talk to their lawyers about yeah. that because that's not my area of specialty but yeah i want to make fact, sure it doesn't even come in the instructions usually that's that's up to us isn't it? When we yeah. talk to the the clients we'll just get a, a set of instructions from the, uh, the mortgage company and they'll say these two need to be on title but it doesn't it's up to us to, to place them yeah so and if even if if mom's on at one percent on title doesn't mean she's she takes one percent responsibility on the mortgage you're 100 percent liable for the mortgage so the lenders don't care about that that's another explanation I go through with clients quite often is joint yeah. and several liability. So I had a conversation this week with a, a dad who's coming on board with his son. And we talked about that. He said, so what happens if he ever misses a payment? And I explained. And, um, you know, that's a conversation. Actually, I digress a little bit here. But that's a conversation I always have if we're talking about bringing a co-borrower onto an application. Mm -hmm. Just my own business and the way I do things, if the application I see in front of me is a gong show and I, and I think that it's a disaster waiting to happen, I won't even ask for a co-borrower because I don't ever want to put a parent yeah. or a sibling or someone yeah. else in that position. Yeah. But even when I do go down the road of adding a co-borrower to an application, we have a very thorough discussion of the implications of what might happen, what their responsibilities are. You know. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, things do happen. I mean, those divorces happen all the time. So we've seen that downside quite a bit. Another thing that comes up a lot when I actually no, don't talk to the broker about it, but clients aren't aware of the other closing costs. So they've they've talked about their mortgage with their broker, they know how much they're getting, but then they just don't realize how much PTT is going to be, how much is, if GST is applicable, how much is that going to be? Um, and then closing costs. Is there title insurance? Is Do we need an insurance binder? Is there strata costs? Is there, what, what are legal fees going to be? So how often are you running through additional closing costs with your clients? Every file. And one of the things we've implemented um, over the last few months 
is an email that goes out to the clients, depending on how far out their closing date is, just to remind them of the closing costs and any last minute things they have to take care of. Yeah. Because I'm sure probably every broker out there has conversations upfront and as they're going through the mortgage process so that clients know what their closing costs are. Yeah. But to be honest, if you're in the throes of buying a house, it's overwhelming. There's so much coming at you every which direction that it's very easy to go, yep, 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 and then forget. And then I, I don't ever want to see my clients surprised at the tail end when they're sitting in front of the lawyer and we need like thirty thousand dollars yeah exactly (laughs) right and the other thing that we've implemented recently so you know you keep talking about questions that you get from your brokers once we know which lawyer we're going to be our clients are going to be working with we send out an introduction letter which includes a copy of their purchase contract and a copy of their mortgage commitment Mm -hmm. reason being is quite often if something is gonna blow up, it's gonna blow up at the tail end. And very often there are things brokers can do um, you know, to liaise between the lawyer and the lender to get things smoothed over and moving forward properly. Mm-hmm. So that's, a um, again, something we've implemented over the last year just to help the process go smoother. Yeah. And what we find is if there's a strong relationship between the lawyer, the client, and the broker, it just eliminates stress so many yeah. ways. Yeah. Tracy Head from Head Start Mortgages. If you're looking for a mortgage, hopefully you'll go to Tracy. Thanks again, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Thank you. FHMP lawyers are rooted in community and ready to help. Send your business law questions to podcast at fhplawyers.com.